9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I am in New York City. I am joined today by Rosa Brooks, who's in the general vicinity of her dryer in Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. Yes, the best podcasters can multitask and do laundry and podcasts at the same time. Everybody knows that that you're capable of much more than that even. Uh, Also, of course, Ed Luce uh, at probably Stately Luce Manor or some other place in Washington, D.C. Hi, Ed. Hi, David. Yeah, back in Washington, D.C. And from the government faculty of the College of William and Mary, we're happy to have with us Larry Wilkerson, a longtime uh, leading thinker on all things national security related, and for many years the chief of staff to General Colin Powell. Hi, Larry. Good to be with you, David. So let's talk, as tempted as we may be to talk about American politics, since it's changing every 25 seconds, uh, let's talk a little bit about something that has was in the news just the past couple of days. Uh, and maybe we'll make our way back home over the course of the episode. But, uh, Larry, you were there at the inception of the conflict in Afghanistan. Just a couple of days ago, Mike Pompeo did something that I bet Colin Powell wouldn't have done, which was he announced a Afghan deal with the Taliban that didn't involve the Afghan government. Um And uh, I was all prepared to discuss that with uh, you guys today. And then, you know, two hours ago, it was announced that um, the Taliban were stepping away from the deal. The Afghan government said they never would agree to giving, releasing 5,000 Taliban prisoners as the, as the Pompeo deal uh, allegedly did. So what do you, what do you think all this, Larry? I've got very mixed emotions about it. (laughs) The whole business in Afghanistan has been a travesty in many respects particularly that time period under General Petraeus. Um, But I I have a real problem with the strategic ineptitude of this administration not examining Afghanistan for what it really is and just looking at it through the prism of politics, domestic politics, essentially, which seems to be the way this president wants to look at even national security issues. And I think that this deal, and I use that term loosely, is uh, Zalhazad's example of what can be accomplished when you get a few people off in Doha or some other uh, esoteric place. Uh, I don't think it'll last five minutes, uh, certainly won't last uh, in an enduring way. And I think we're seeing signs of that already. I, I think that's so. Um, Rosa, uh, I don't know how closely you're following the, the, the plot of Homeland this year on Showtime, um, but the plot of Showtime, the plot of Showtime is actually leading the plot of of these negotiations with the Taliban in really um, disturbing ways. What were your reactions over the weekend? Um, well, I have none to the plot of Homeland because I, I don't watch it, although since we have a president who seems to make his decisions based on Fox News, why not, why not have uh, other parts of the executive branch make their decisions based on other TV shows? 
Um, but no, I, I mean, it, it's, it's very sad. Um, obviously, this is a conflict that needs a diplomatic ending. And I think all of us were, you know, no matter what one feels about the Trump administration, I think everybody was crossing their fingers and hoping that this, this uh, proposal had some chance of succeeding. It, it seemed pretty clear from the beginning that the odds of success were, were unlikely, given, given that the Afghan government was not a part of it, uh, et cetera. Um, but I, you know, I was disappointed. It, it, it seems now to be falling apart. Um, which is not surprising, but it is awfully sad. I, I think that Afghanistan is going to remain a dilemma for whoever wins the 2020 election um, in terms of trying to decide, uh, is there some point when the U.S. needs to unilaterally withdraw all of its combat troops and just leave, as as Biden, for instance, is suggesting a small counterterrorism-oriented presence, or in fact, pull everybody out. And, and obviously all of the Democratic candidates have some variant from everybody out to most people out. Um, we've also seen that this war in Afghanistan has had a way of sort of sucking people right back in, even when they come in asserting that they plan to get out. Um, so, you know, I, I don't I don't think we have seen the last of the conflict in Afghanistan from a U.S. perspective, and I don't think we're likely to anytime in the next three, four, five years. Yeah, it does have a tendency to suck people back into it. And you kind of wonder, um, you know, how the Russians and Alexander the Great and the British feel about that. <laughs> they um, would have had a few a few comments for us. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure that they would have. But Ed, it does make us want to sort of take a look at this in a historical sense. I think there's a broad sense among um, national security specialists of all stripes that there's no great solution in Afghanistan right now. Um, uh, and that really what you want is something that keeps a lid on things for as long as possible. And it's unclear what that is. But if you look at this in terms of the agreement that Pompeo offered, essentially it's a fig leaf to allow the United States to draw down its troops in the next 14 months and essentially get out of there. Um, and to turn the keys of the country back over to the Taliban. Now, arguably, they're doing it to the Taliban and the Afghan government, but as we noted, the Afghan government was not party to this deal. And after 20 years of fighting and, um, you know, trillion or $2 trillion spent and 2,400 American lives and an enormous amount of sacrifice, Ed, as you look back, you know, you have to look at this as a profound exercise in futility, don't you? I, I mean, I, I guess so. You know, the decision, right, from the decision to um, to, to duck the Tora Bora opportunity and, and, and pivot to Iraq from, from very early on, uh, late 2001, early 2002, um, I think that, uh, you know, Afghanistan has, has been a, a, a graveyard of um, opportunities. But I would, you know, grudgingly uh, accept the logic of what Trump is doing. Um, the, if you do look at history, um, you'll see that the way the British bought off, uh, having having been humiliated dramatically twice in Afghanistan in the 19th century, the way the British coped with it from then on was to buy off the tribal tribal agencies, uh, the Pashtuns who happened to be on the Raj side of the border arbitrarily. Not on the um, 
Afghanistan side of the border, and they'd essentially just bribe them, you know, not to cause the British um, trouble. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got that same problem today is that Afghanistan itself is going to continue probably to destabilize and um, fall under Taliban control. Uh, but we've got a good quarter of Pakistan, the tribal agencies, um, that are going to be aiding and abetting them. And, and, and unless you, um, as was always the case, unless you make Pakistan a responsible part of the solution, then Afghanistan is irresolvable. Um, I think back to Richard Holbrook, what he wanted to do in his final job um, before he died, uh, which was the um, AFPAC person for the Obama administration. And he wanted to convene a grand conference of regional uh, neighbors. Sorry, you're probably hearing some police sirens go past me as I talk. Um, he wanted to be what have you done what have you done uh, yeah i'm wondering i'm just sort of scrambling around my room trying to hide my jewel you know cartridges and stuff like that um the um the grand conference that holbrook wanted to set up you know that would include iran russia china um pakistan of course was something that never got off the ground um and if the uh, trump administration were different um this kind of hasty fig-leafed withdrawal that you've just been talking about would would be accompanied or preceded by a grand diplomatic effort of that kind but of course it's it's um uh it's inconceivable with with president trump as president that um that, that any such initiative would ever ever happen and so we're left with this um terrible um, a terrible deal that is nevertheless slightly less bad than carrying on as normal. So, Larry, you have a, a unique perspective on this. You've had a, a long career as a, a very high-level and distinguished military officer, and then you went uh, with General Powell over to the State Department. You had the perspective of this from uh, the diplomatic point of view. You were there at a time, I think, when in the wake of 9-11, any U.S. government would have gone into Afghanistan if that's where uh, the people responsible for the 9-11 attacks were or where support for them was. Um, and so going in certainly um, seems like the kind of thing uh, that is uh, sort of uh, beyond critique, at, at, at least initially. But as you look at it from a historical perspective, how do you think this is going to be assessed, this, these two decades? I don't think there's any reasonable strategic and perhaps not even operational rationale for our having stayed in Afghanistan the way we have stayed in Afghanistan. At the same time I say that, though, I put on my military strategic thinking hat and I say, where is the most difficult place in the world we found to get into? when we were doing war planning in the late 70s and the 80s, Afghanistan. Where is the most difficult place in the world to fly even powerful helicopters like the Black Hawk, Afghanistan? Why did the Russians lose so many high Ds and other of their helicopters? It wasn't altogether shoulder-fired missiles. It was the difficult aviation environment Afghanistan presents. So we're there. Ask Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld was furious with the Army for not being able to get into Afghanistan any more swiftly than it did. The CIA actually fought the war in Afghanistan, along with some F-16s, other aircraft, and some special operators on the ground. The military, as it were, did not get there for some time, and there's a reason for that. 
So now we're there. So if I were looking at this strategically, again, with my military hat on, I'd say stay there. Why would I say stay there? One, because we have hard power along the land route of China's base road initiative, only place in the world we do, really. Two, we are cheek and jowl with the most potentially destabilized nuclear arms stockpile in the world in Pakistan. And three, if we wanted to mount CIA operations using the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province in China, there'd be no better place to be than Afghanistan. So if I were looking at this as a military professional and saying where the United States ought to be with its hard power, it wouldn't be in Kuwait, it wouldn't be in Qatar, it wouldn't be anywhere in the Middle East, it would be in Southwest Asia in particular, it would be in Afghanistan. But our vision is clouded, we have no strategy, and we wouldn't even begin to think that way about Afghanistan. So we have no choice but to get out. There are three power centers in Afghanistan, and I'll list them in descending order of power. The tribes and the tribal leaders, the Taliban, and without the United States government, I wouldn't even list Kabul, but with the United States government, I'll list Kabul. That's an untenable situation unless you can work something out where you're going to stay and you're going to be there for quite some time. Think Germany, think Korea, think Japan. So we're just not mm -hmm. thinking very clearly about this region. I understand the angst. No one wants to end these stupid, endless wars more so than I. But I do understand there are some dangerous places out there in the world, and there are some strategic places one needs to be with one's hard power in order to deal with them. And we're completely blinded in that regard uh, with respect to Afghanistan. Well, Rosa, that's a pretty interesting and thoughtful argument. You know, we tend to look at these things in terms of the recent past or in terms of the political feeling that surrounds the war at any moment. Sometimes when people are really visionaries, they look three, four, five, six months out. But they very seldom look at the long-term <laughs> strategic implications of 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 you know what our planning is and what our geopolitical interests are uh, for the years and decades ahead of us, as Larry just did, and that does cast this in a somewhat different light, don't you think? Oh, it does, and 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 I think Larry's absolutely right to lay out that case, and I, I think this is one of the problems with the the current rhetoric about oh we must end endless wars. I was actually speaking at a conference that was co-sponsored by. Uh, Foreign Policy and the, the new Quincy Institute, uh, uh, the project that's been co-funded by George Soros and the Koch Foundation, various other funders, to focus on a less interventionist U.S. foreign policy. And I was on a panel called Ending Endless War. And the first question uh, we grappled with was, is this a useful, is this even a useful phrase? Is this a useful framework? And I'm inclined to think it is not because it it's become one of those things that just... Um, it, it, it obfuscates much more than it clarifies. It's completely confusing. Nobody actually knows what we mean. If what we mean by ending endless war is, you know, let's end stupid, wasteful, bloody, unstrategic, benefitless military adventurism, you know, no one is going to disagree with that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if we conflate, if we conflate having a troop presence with endless war, um, then endless war includes Germany, South Korea, et cetera, plus lots of other places. Um, and, and Larry's right to point out that there isn't necessarily anything bad or scary or, or bad for the country or having troops remain in an area 
in order to be there in case something does happen. You know, the, the, the question is, are we thinking about it strategically? Are we actually thinking, well, what are the costs? What are the benefits? Are there other ways to do this? Is this the best way to do this? You know, I, I think, and I, and I think his invitation to have that conversation is, is a really important one. I would, I would, however, add, um, here's, here's yet another way to think about this. And this is the extremely cynical way. And I, I'm here, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, channeling my, my very cynical husband, uh, retired army special forces officer, whose reaction to debates about withdrawing troops from Afghanistan has always been, are you kidding? Nobody in the army wants to get troops out of Afghanistan. This is a fantastic war, which is to say that relatively speaking, um, the casualty rate for Americans has been quite low compared to historical conflicts, certainly. Obviously, it's a terrible tragedy for anyone who has the misfortune to be one of those casualties and their families. Um, but relatively speaking, this has actually been a, a pretty low-cost conflict for the United States. Um, and it's great for the military because everybody gets you know, combat patches and everybody gets a chance for promotion. Everybody gets to say, yes, I was in combat in Afghanistan. And why on earth would why on earth would the army want to end this? Um, this is this is terrific for everybody, and and he's very cynical, uh, and I, I think that that's probably oversimplistic. But there there's probably something to that, you know, that the not in, not in the sort of totally cynical sense, but in the sense that we haven't felt urgency as a nation about getting out of Afghanistan in the same way that I think people did feel about Iraq, circa 2006 2007, um, because things it's just not that bad. You know, it's 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 relatively stable for us. And, you know, that's cynical, but it's also something to keep in mind. Well, I think, you know, again, both Larry's point of view and what Rosa's just brought up, even if it is brought up in the context of uh, expressed cynicism, are the kind of things we need to be considering rather than facile, glib conversations. Um, picking up on Larry's points, Ed, you're a specialist in the subcontinent, and certainly the dynamics of the subcontinent are changing. Larry mentioned the situation um, in northwest China with regard to the Uyghurs. Uh, he also mentioned Belt and Road, and of course the Chinese uh, are, are rumored to be planning to build a, a naval base inside of uh, Pakistan, which will be the second naval base for China outside of China. They're spending, they're the, their largest embassy in the world is in Pakistan. They're spending more money in Pakistan than almost any place else in the world in terms of infrastructure investment and so forth. So the Chinese are active. The Indians are becoming more nationalistic. The United States influence over Iran has diminished. The Russian influence over Iran has increased, pulling the U.S. out of Afghanistan altogether. Um, particularly if that leads to uh, the Taliban and tribes filling the vacuum and a weakening in Kabul, as Larry points out, does suggest you know potential geopolitical problems to come, doesn't it? Ed? It does, but I, I can't imagine you know any iteration of anything that could possibly happen uh, with the Americans either in Afghanistan or out of Afghanistan that don't involve potential geopolitical problems to come. Um, so you know, there's there's never going to be a there's never going to be a, um, a a policy that gets rid of geopolitical problems. Um, you could argue uh, that uh, a stable Afghanistan, which is is something that you know Ch China w would certainly um, have as as big a, an interest in achieving as anybody, um, 
is going to now cost China a lot more um, in the same way maybe that stabilizing Syria is going to cost Russia a lot more. The question is, the American impulse always to be the stabilizer in chief and the global policeman in chief is something America, I think, has lost appetite for, um, rightly or wrongly. I think in a lot of cases, rightly. Uh, and 18 years um, of you know listening to the Pentagon. I mean, Obama, I think, must rue very, very deeply um, accepting the um, surge advice that he took early into his administration as, as not landed America in a better geopolitical um, place. And incidentally, as I think Rosa probably mentioned, Joe Biden, you know, it gives him some bragging rights now that he disagreed with that um, with that surge. He said it wouldn't it wouldn't fix um, things. When Trump was in India last week, uh, I understand that this was the first item Narendra Modi raised with him. Look, please don't get out of Afghanistan. You're going to create a problem for us. It, it, it does advance China's um, China on the chessboard. Um, it does give Pakistan much greater meddling opportunities. Um, and um, therefore, life's going to become tougher for India. Um, again, though, you know, perhaps India, you know, should step up a bit more if, if that's the case. Um, and withdrawing most of America's military presence from Afghanistan does not preclude the kind of vitally important regional diplomacy um, that that I mentioned earlier that Holbrook was recommending and that, and that Biden was supporting early in the Obama administration um, to try and stabilize Afghanistan. So I, I would stick with my view that, you know, although it is to say it, um, that I fully support Saul Berenson in getting kidnapped on homeland um, in the attempt to reach some kind of an understanding um, with the Taliban, it's very, very hard to imagine Robert O'Brien getting kidnapped, I have to say. Um, or, in, or, in, or anyone noticing, for that matter, but go ahead. Already noticing. Um, uh, but I, 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 do not, I do not see how America's um, larger ends um, are going to be served by more of the same. So, Larry... When you know you were talking about in the early 70s and in the 80s, looking for the hardest place to get in and the hardest place to get out of, there's been a bit of a competition over the course of the past 20 years for the biggest mess the United States has found itself in. Not, you know, you you were talking about some of the logistical challenges associated, but uh, but there are also geopolitical and social and economic and 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 other kinds of challenges that make place a mess. And of course, Afghanistan. Um, you know, came on the radar, but was immediately overtaken by Iraq, which is one of the great catastrophes in American foreign policy history, certainly the great. And I th and I think we still fully do not understand the lasting impact of the error of going into Iraq. Um, and, and by the way, you know, out, out of uh, fairness, I point out to Ed that Joe Biden's response to that was to divide Iraq like Gaul into three parts, which was not a terribly great idea. Um, so mixed record there, but 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 after Iraq and and aside from Afghanistan, the place that's the biggest mess and was a foreign policy disaster for Obama that has now turned into a foreign policy disaster for Trump is Syria. And over the course of the past few days, we have seen 
the, 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 the consequences, further consequences of the president's decision to get out of that part of the world and to leave it to the Turks and the Russians and the Syrians to um, sort of handle it themselves. And this has resulted in um, uh, a bunch of Turks being killed, the Turks deciding that they were going to go straight after the Syrian government, the Russians being upset, a meeting now being set up with Putin as the ultimate deal, break, deal maker, uh, and Erdogan in Moscow in Thursday, and the UN saying, stand by for one of the great humanitarian crises of our time if all this continues. Uh, and the U.S. is out of it. We're nowhere to be seen. Is that smart? Are, are there just places we ought to be out of? And Syria is one of them, which was kind of the Obama approach and is now the Trump approach. Or are we going to uh, pay, pay, pay for leaving this to Erdogan, Putin, uh, and Assad? You know, David, I have uh, a, a real challenge dealing with uh, comments that essentially invite military power because that, I'm not saying you mean that, but that's what most of us mean when we say things like, uh, are we going to get out or whatever? Of course, we shouldn't get out with our good offices, with our humanitarian assistance and so forth. But my solution to Syria has been the same all along. And it started with Prince Bandar and his dozens of fighters going into Syria and the CIA going in with them, however reluctantly. Um, it's get out. Everybody get out of Syria. Erdogan, get out of Syria. Putin, go home to your naval base and other facilities and stay quiet. Um, Saudi Arabia and all the rest, get out, get out, get out. Let Bashar al-Assad, as unsavory as he may be, take back his country and get the millions of people in the Syrian diaspora now, both inside the country and increasingly outside, as your comments suggested, get back to their lives. That's the way to solve the problem in Syria. All the outsiders leave him alone while he stabilizes his country, and that includes Bibi Netanyahu too, and the mullahs in Tehran, and let him do just that. Let him put Syria back together again. That's the only solution I see. Now, I realize how complex and difficult that would be, but that's be, that would be the solution I'd be aiming at from the White House were I there. By the way, I left out uh, unintentionally the Iranians who are also um, uh, have people on the ground there and are being victimized. I presume you also mean the Iranians should get out as well. Yes. Sorry, did I say the Iraqis, Iranians? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm just saying. I, I just, I, I just left them out of all of this. You know, Rosa. As I think of all of this, there was a moment when Trump said, "Oh, sure, I'll get out." That I'm sure Vladimir Putin, who met shortly after that moment too with Erdogan, thought, "I am a master of the universe," and now Vladimir Putin is in the position of, "How do I clean up this mess?" I, you know, I, I can't imagine he feels. Um, that uh, getting the U.S. out of there has uh, made his life any easier. <laughs> David, I absolutely am not going to speculate about how Vladimir Putin feels. Uh, you're not. I always no. felt. I always felt yeah. you two. I felt. I always felt you two were so close. Um, but <laughs> David, I'll speculate. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yes, Larry, go go for it. <laughs> I just I just watched and will host a showing of uh, Citizen K in Norfolk tomorrow night, and watching Mikhail Khalilov and his takeover of Yukos Oil and 
becoming one of the richest, if not the richest man in the world during that time of fire sales in Moscow, uh, opened my eyes not only to the kind of situation that was going on at that time, which I had deep suspicions of, even as it was happening, Yeltsin and Putin coming on the scene and so forth, but it also, and more than any other aspect of that Alex Gibney excellent documentary, it shows Putin for what Putin is. First of all, he is a chess player par excellence. He has beaten us on almost every stage in the world where he's chosen to take us on with his less than full deck because he really doesn't. I hate to say, I hate to say it, Larry. Doing even, these a, things. even a even a checkers player par excellence would be yeah. beating us at this point. Yeah, well, uh, well, we're playing checkers and badly, and he's playing tic tac toe. Uh, so I, you know, I'm I'm all in favor of him getting in trouble somewhere. Well, it seems it seems to be happening there, Rosa. Let me twist the question slightly, a few degrees. Um, the the UN says a major humanitarian crisis is on the horizon. Neither Erdogan, nor Putin, nor the Iranians, nor Assad have ever shown much concern for that kind of thing. When Syrians start dying again by the thousands. What is the appropriate response of the U.S. and the West? I think that's a hard question to answer in the abstract um, because it's going to depend on exactly what's happening. I mean, and I and I should say I'm not an expert on Syria in any case, but but I do think that the the biggest error that we tend to make here in the U.S. is assuming that because something is tragic and awful, and we wish somebody would do something to make it less tragic and awful that therefore we ought to be the ones to do something when that is uncoupled from being quite confident that we actually have the ability to do something to make things better rather than worse. You know, we tend to take a, a, a little bit of a fool's rush in approach. And, you know, there are, I mean, thinking about the sort of classic just war tradition, which is very much incorporated into the, uh, even things like the responsibility to protect uh, humanitarian intervention framework. You know, one of the criteria before you go in is is not just, is it horrible? Is it tragic? Is it awful? Um, but do we actually have the ability to make it better? So this is just a, a general caution, I think. I think that we, we, we tend to immediately rush from it's awful to we should do something. And sometimes there's not a thing that we actually can do that makes things better. Um, sometimes all we really can do is is a sort of stand back, provide humanitarian assistance, be willing to accept refugees, just because we don't have the capacity to improve things. And and when we when we rush in, we often tend to make things worse. So I can't give you a specific answer because you know. I, and and I say that not to say that there are no situations where where U.S. military power can help. I actually think that there are, and I think that we miss some opportunities in Syria very early on to make a significant difference. But now that we are where we are, is it likely that we're going to have the ability to use American military power in direct ways to make things better? Um, hasn't ha nothing, nothing that has happened in the last few years gives me much confidence in that. Okay, so very quick question to add, and then I'm going to switch the, the topic in our last 15 minutes. But Ed, uh, if, if, if uh, the Syrian crisis continues and unfolds as the UN predicts, um, it's likely to lap up on the shores of Europe pretty quickly, a Europe that is disintegrated uh, largely, that is, is caught up with problems at home. 
um, and that seems ill-equipped to address it. What do you think the consequence of another wave of Syrians into Europe would be? Well, I think you know that the the big consequence was the wave that um, Europe accepted, or more particularly Angela Merkel accepted in 2015. Um, you know, when she she opened she opened the gates and a million or so um, came in that that had been Syrians getting through um, prior to that and subsequent to that. But that that was the really huge impact, and of course it empowered the far right. Um, the forces of nativism across Europe in a way no other single act has, I, I don't think, in the last um, several years. And arguably, coming um, a few months before the Brexit referendum, it, it helped tip the Brexit referendum towards leave. So nothing good can come of um, of, of streams more of, of Syrian refugees or indeed North African refugees um, from other from other. Um, Wars and other um, economic, um, dire economic um, situations can. Um, Europe getting its act together on this, I think, involves simply policing its external border. I, I find it very hard to believe that there's going to be the kind of um, imaginative and strong diplomacy from Europe as a coherent single actor with Turkey. And with um, uh, and with the regional powers um, around Syria to stop the situation from arising in the first place, you know, in terms of whether America, you know, should every time it sees these tragic scenes that you're getting now from Idlib, but you know, from from many parts of Syria in the past, feel compelled to do something is. I, I, I very much understand what Rosa is saying. Um, there are many other things America can do than military intervene, uh, uh, than intervene militarily. It's got extraordinary diplomatic convening power. It's got an extraordinary ability if it, if it remembers what it has, which it doesn't and never will under Trump. But as a power, America can still lead the world in prodding others to take action, convening them to meet, coordinating what they do and having a tremendous impact without this very tired sort of one club golf playing debate about whether you military intervene or not. And if you don't, you're not doing anything. And if you do, you are. That there are so many other golf clubs to choose from. Um, and uh, what I fear about America is it's forgotten, it's forgotten how to use all the other ones. I, I, I feel compelled to ask on behalf of all of our listeners, have you ever played golf in your life? Badly a couple of times. And as I used the analogy, I realized um, it was too late to reverse and switch to cricket. <laughs> um, but I, I thought cricket, cricket might not have brought along our listeners. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So, but, but, you know, mini golf is always, always works with our, yeah. our listening audience. <laughs> with our audience. It, it does. Larry, um, let me shift gears altogether, um, but I'll try to do it with a neat segue, picking up on what Ed, Ed, Ed was just talking about. The wave of Syrian immigrants, the wave of immigrants from failing states, was used by um, uh, ethno-nationalists in, in Europe and in the U.S. Um, as a way to say, we have to keep people out, we have to build up the borders, that's the only thing that we can do. Um, we're already hearing that echoed with regard to the current concern about the novel coronavirus, which has now spread to, as of 
the time we're recording this, perhaps 90,000 cases around the world, um, and the first fatality in the U.S. and so forth. And, and the president of the U.S. is getting a lot of criticism for his handling of this, um, you know, is starting to say, well, look, look at the way I've closed the borders and, and the way that we are taking a tough stand at the border is the only way to keep us safe. Um, so, you know, you could you could easily see people saying, well, we can't accept those Syrians, you know, coronavirus. Um, but there's a broader issue also associated with this, and that is that we have seen in the handling of the coronavirus what might be seen as the first big crisis that the Trump administration faced that it did not play a big role in creating. And we have seen several things associated with it. They shut down the capability of dealing with pandemics that existed within the National Security Council. They've sought to cut funding for these kind of pandemics. They, according to the president, feel that they could just start these things up. They don't need to have embedded capacity. They don't much like experts. They don't much like science. They don't much like people who are disloyal. They value loyalty above national interest in almost all things, which is why you have Mike Pence, who doesn't believe in science and who uh, bungled some fairly serious health crises in Indiana, now in charge of this particular crisis and him appearing on news media um, in lieu of, say, Dr. Fauci of NIH, who is sort of the world's leading expert on this. Um, what does our handling of the coronavirus tell you, Larry, about how we uh, might handle other crises and how well prepared we are for the other kinds of things that can emerge on the national security front? Certainly doesn't give me a lot of comfort. Um, I'll have to say also that China's initial handling of it, if what I'm hearing and what I'm reading is accurate, doesn't give me a lot of comfort either. Um, I would take it a little bit higher though, and I would, I would talk about something that's coming down the road, and maybe this makes us, it should, much more fearful, especially given the incompetence of the current administration, apparently, in dealing with such things as this. And that's what we uh, simulated for a couple of years using the Center for Naval Analyses and others and using Europeans and Japanese and Indians and Chinese and so forth in the game simulations and the scenario building sessions and looking at the refugee flows. Now, uh, about 170 million people, with a lot of them coming out of Yemen and Syria and places like that, increasing to, by mid-century, as many as 500 million or more. And what we found in these simulations was we found that people were doing, Europeans, uh, peer powers, we call them, stretching from Tokyo all the way through Moscow to Beijing, they were actually putting troops on the borders and manning their borders with machine guns, and ultimately they were shooting people because these people were coming essentially from the south to the north, looking for water, looking for food, looking for life. And it was a very, very gruesome situation that we saw in some of the worst case scenarios we were looking at. And of course, all of this was produced not just by the current conflicts we have, like Yemen, like Syria, but also by the massive effects by that time of what we call the climate crisis. And we were looking at uh, acidification of the seas, destruction of water, desertification of the land, no arable land for agriculture. Iran, for example, in some provinces this year, 
had its annual rainfall in about 14 days. This is going to happen in Pakistan. It's going to happen in Western India as the global, uh, as the Himalayan uh, glaciers melt and send their snow melt down south. We are going to have refugee flows unprecedented. Will there be things like the coronavirus and uh, epidemics, pan pandemics associated with it? Probably, but we didn't even play that in our simulations to get what we got in some of the, as I said, worst case uh, outcomes. This is a bad situation, and it certainly doesn't require the limiting of state ability to respond to them. It requires the rejiggering, the re-architecturing, and the funding of these mechanisms to take on enormous challenges that coronavirus is just sort of the cutting edge of or the first cusp of. You know, Rosa, I wrote an article in the Washington Post in 2004, which you know, you were a small girl at the time, but uh, it true. was talking about um, SARS. And what I was talking about was that as bad as SARS was, it turned out that the 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 response to st SARS you, in a, a modern information society was worse. And I sort of coined a word, which it's probably my only achievement in life, but it ended up in the Oxford Dictionary and so forth that subsequent to that, and that was infodemic, which is to say that it's there are often situations that take place in the world today in which the um, response of social media, the response of the media overall, creates effects that can be bigger than the underlying event. That happened with SARS. It was a, a, it was a serious outbreak of a disease um, there were a couple thousand lives lost, but um, the, the Asian economy got shut down for months. It cost $40 billion. It really sort of set back the world economy and world travel and so forth for, for many, many months. Some people estimate that but, you know, over the course of the next year, coronavirus, everybody may get coronavirus. You know that it's going to spread widely. Not that everybody's going to die of it or or anything of the sort, but that over the course of a year in which that takes place, there can be panic points in a dis in in these kind of uh, uh, social media reactions to this, a few deaths, et cetera, et cetera, um, that could have crushing effects economically. We saw the stock market last week. We could see more of that. Um, uh, a, a massive impact on tourism and travel and trade um, and and so forth. And yet, this administration still seems committed to the path of 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 happy talk um, and uh, saying, "Oh no, everything er everything's gonna be fine." And you know, the question is, how long an administration like this can be at odds? With the wave of the infodemic, you know that which 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 you know. But by, by the way, one of the things I was on the board of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health at the time, and I sat down with an epidemiologist, and we 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 tracked how an epidemic spreads, and we then tracked how these rumors and stories spread across the internet. It's the same model. When we say something goes viral, it literally goes viral. It it, it spreads the same way a virus does. Uh, and 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 public attitudes towards this are going to spread um, 
you know, regardless of, of, of what the president may say. Yeah, no, that's that that is absolutely true. I think there's a, a different question of, you know, who who do Americans end up blaming um, and what we have seen thus far in since the election of 2016 is Trump really has been Teflon for his own base. Uh, you know, so 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 will this panic has this this panic already spread to his own base, sure. Um, but as we have seen, uh, Trump and his team are doing, you know, yeoman's work, blaming it all, on the, <laughs> blaming it somehow on the Democratic primary candidates, which is a bit of a head scratcher. Um, so, 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 so I don't, so, so I don't think it goes without saying that he, that he, the President Trump, ends up paying a political price, right? I mean, I think the people, the people who who are likely to hold him accountable for failures to handle the coronavirus appropriately um, are the people who already dislike him, uh, whereas the people who already like him have already shown uh, over the last few years that so far nothing has budged their support as far as as far as I can tell. So so I think those are sort of two separate questions. You know, does this does this do we have to continue to worry as much about the sort of viral information and misinformation much of the time causing panics. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, will that have political fallout? Will that have economic fallout? Yes, absolutely. Uh, who will end up being injured by it? Uh, I'm not sure we can conclude that Donald Trump's administration, no matter how badly you or I think they've mishandled it, uh, is the one that's going to pay the price. Um, I think Hunter Biden caused the coronavirus epidemic. I mean, there's really no question about that. There is no question about that. And I'm glad we brought up Hunter Biden as we try to do on every episode. He brought it uh, back from China <laughs> when he was getting those millions of dollars from the Chinese government. Yeah. Really. Hunter yeah. Biden. What a, yeah. what, a, what, a what a snake. <laughs> yeah. Right. Patient, patient zero. <laughs> patient zero is right. Um, um, anyway, anyway um, we've got two minutes left. I'm going to change the subject altogether. Ed had a really good piece on the shifts in the uh, political landscape over the course of the past couple of days. Since you wrote your piece, Ed, the political landscape shifted a lot more, uh, by the way, supporting the thesis of your piece, which I'm sure was quite gratifying. Um, but but perhaps <laughs> you can you can sum up exactly where we are at now, given all of these these shifts in a in a, in a couple of minutes, two minutes. Absolutely, but I'll, I'll do so just by picking up on the coronavirus theme, because I, I do think I slightly disagree with Rosa there that the coronavirus um, is going to leave uh, Trump supporters exactly where they were before it hit. I, I mean, I do think he's put his credibility on the line that there are no cases here, there's nothing to worry about, move along. And if we do get the kind of, I just got back overnight, I took the red eye from Seattle, where I've been for the last two, three days, and where, as you know, the first real homegrown cluster um, of, of coronavirus sort of contagion um, is happening. And um, you can see very easily um, how if you get this spreading um, sort of five to 10 times to the degree we've seen in Washington state, which I think is going to happen and probably already has, we just haven't tested it and measured it properly yet, um, that Trump's going to get hit in two ways. The first is uh, the economic growth numbers. Goldman Sachs have come in with their second quarter estimate of U.S. growth at zero. 
and their third quarter estimate of 1%, which so essentially means half a percent annualized growth, um, you know, between uh, the beginning of April and the end of September, precisely the window when Americans ask themselves, you know, are we better off? Um, and the second is, of course, to Trump's credibility. And um, this is this is not your usual fake news debate with no material consequences. This is an epidemic, potentially. So I think this this is this is an existential threat to Trump. Um, uh, in terms of the race, you know, no no number. I keep being reminded that no numbers um, that were taken before the South Carolina um, Biden victory are going to mean much um, between um, then and Super Tuesday because there could be a shift going, a consolidation going on here um, behind Biden. Um, and the fact that Klobuchar and Buttigieg are, you know, are, now, are now getting behind Biden is just going to assist that. I think, I think what we're going to see is um, Sanders come out on top Tuesday night, maybe not by the same margin that he would have um, otherwise. But his his leads in places like California, with delegate rich places like California, are so big, and early voting has been so strong, it's it's very hard to see Biden overtaking him. So I think what's going to happen from Wednesday morning onwards is a clamor for Bloomberg to drop out. I think um, it'll it'll sort of boil down to um, a, a, a Biden a Biden um, Sanders um, event with contest with. Elizabeth Warren sticking in as the unity candidate because there's not going to be any love lost between the establishment wing and the anti-establishment wing um, that Biden and Sanders represent. We're going to then see a bunch of sort of small clusters of primaries stretching through March and April, eh, w which I think will take on a sort of First World War um, uh, you know, element in terms of gaining a little bit of ground for a lot of money. Um, and one or other side hoping desperately it can get above 50%. Um, if Bloomberg stays in, which he's given every indication he's going to, and nobody can force him out, then I don't think you're going to see Biden get anywhere near 50% of the delegates. So this is, um, um, this is, this is going to be a very sort of bloody closely fought um, primary that, that doesn't end that doesn't end with the party unified behind either Sanders or Biden. Well, shit. Hmm. But you, do you disagree? Do you disagree? I mean, what's the, the rosy scenario? Depressing? I don't know, Larry. <laughs> do, you, do you have a rosy? Does anybody have a rosy scenario? That's a, what Ed just said is what I was thinking last night and wondering if the feckless Democrats, even in the face of this administration's crimes and ravages, are still going to defeat themselves. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Well, you know, Larry, I don't know how often you've listened to our podcast, but we always turn to Rosa at the end because she always gives things that special shine. No, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be depressing. First of all, I, I first of all, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? It, it could it could turn out that it's much clearer one way or the other after tomorrow. Um, I you know, I certainly agree with Ed that we're we're in effect in a Biden Sanders race at this point. Um, so I, I, it would, while it would not at all shock me for the outcome tomorrow to be pretty indeterminate, leaving us with a long slog ahead, uh, where each new primary, everybody's sort of counting, you know, the extra two delegates here, three delegates there, uh, and then even a brokered convention. 
Um, um, I also think it's entirely possible that the momentum will be really obviously with either Sanders or Biden after tomorrow. Um, and I don't necessarily think even if we end up with a broker convention that that's necessarily such a bad thing. Um, I think that my, you know, my big fear um, is that it will just get nasty um, and that we'll get something very similar to what actually happened in 2016, where the, the anger uh, amongst Sanders voters towards Hillary Clinton was so great that you know, it seems pretty clear that a lot of them stayed home or made protest votes, and that could very well have cost Clinton the election. There's, you know, hard to say, but um, so so I, that would be, I think, awful for the Democrats to get so fragmented uh, that whichever candidate does not end up winning the nomination, that there are some significant chunk of their followers stays home in a sulk. Um, but but you know, if we can keep things from getting nasty, and I'm still crossing my fingers that we can. You know, I think some actual competition over over ideas and policies between the so-called progressive and so-called moderate wings of the Democratic Party is is probably a healthy thing. I'm I'm actually I think those labels are are oversimplified pretty substantially. But but no, I'm I'm actually not that pessimistic. I I'm, I'm glad that Klobuchar and Buttigieg have dropped out. Um, I think it speaks well of both of them that they dropped out. Um, because I think that having, you know, so many candidates was just confusing and fragmenting. But I think we're I think we're entering a period where actually the Democratic Party is in pretty good shape. I, I by the way, for what it's worth, and I'm always wrong about politics, um, agree with you. Um, I don't know if that refutes what you're saying, but but because I'm always <laughs> wrong. But 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 I, but I do think that if you have Ed's scenario and you go to a, a convention and you actually have an awareness on the part of Biden that Bernie has a lot of support uh, and and on the part of Bernie that Biden has a lot. Of, well, there you go. And things work the way they're supposed to, that you could end up with a Democratic Party platform and awareness of the candidates that it needs to unify the whole party, um, at, which is the way democracy is supposed to work rather than having one extreme attack the other and hoping to destroy it. Um, and that could, in fact, produce a candidate that's better, and it may, in fact, produce policies that are better. Um, uh, and of course, all the other things we we're talking about, including notably the coronavirus outbreak and its potential economic effects, um, will color this in ways that no amount of campaign planning can prepare for and may end up driving the outcome. Uh, we'll see. And we'll see in upcoming episodes of Deep State Radio, including ones later this week and going onward. I'm really glad that, Larry, you joined us for the first time, and I hope that you will come back again soon. I thought your perspectives were great, um, and uh, um, I hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, of course, Rosa and Ed, as always, it's great to have you here. Same for you, audience. Great to have you on board, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Deep State Radio. Bye-bye.